but he still relates this essence to the family as the last territoriality of private man whence the position of Oedipus, marginal at first in the three essays, then centering more and more around desire. It is as though Freud were asking to be forgiven his profound discovery of sexuality by saying to us, at least it won't go any further than the family. The dirty little secret, in place of the wide open spaces glimpsed for a moment. The familialist reduction, in place of the drift of desire. In place of the great decoded flows, little streams recoded in mommy's bed. Interiority in place of a new relationship with the outside. Throughout psychoanalysis, the discourse of bad conscience and guilt always rises up and finds its nourishment what is called being cured. On two points at least, Freud exonerates the real exterior family of any wrongs, the better to internalize the family and the wrongs in the person of the family's smallest member, the child. The way in which he posits an autonomous repression independent of social repression, the way in which he abandons the theme of the seduction of the child by the adult, in order to substitute the individual fantasy that makes the real parents into so many innocents or even victims. For the family must appear in two forms, one where doubtless it is guilty, but only in the manner in which the child lives it intensely, internally, and where it is confounded with the child's own guilt, the other where it is a tribunal of responsibility, before which one stands as a guilty child, and in relation to which one becomes a responsible adult, Oedipus as sickness and sanity, the family as an alienating factor and as an agent of delineation, if only through the way in which it is reconstituted in the transference. This is what Foucault has shown in his very fine analysis, the familialism inherent in psychoanalysis doesn't so much destroy classical psychiatry as shine forth as the latter's crowning achievement. After the madman of the earth and the madman of the despot comes the madman of the family, what 19th century psychiatry had wanted to organize in the asylum the imperative fiction of the family, reason the father and madness the child or minor, the parents who are ill only from their own childhood all this finds its fulfillment outside the asylum, in psychoanalysis, and in the consulting room of the analyst. Freud is the Luther and the Adam Smith of psychiatry. He mobilizes all the resources of myth, of tragedy, of dreams, in order to re-enslave desire, this time from within, an intimate theater. Yes, Oedipus is nevertheless the universal of desire, the product of universal history but on one condition, which is not met by Freud, that Oedipus be capable, at least to a certain point, of conducting its autocritique. Universal history is nothing more than a theology if it does not seize control of the conditions of its contingent, singular existence, its irony, and its own critique. And what are these conditions, this point where the autocritique is possible and necessary? To discover beneath the familial reduction the nature of the social investments of the unconscious. To discover beneath the individual fantasy the nature of group fantasies. Or, what amounts to the same thing, to push the simulacrum to the point where it ceases to be the image of an image, so as to discover the abstract figures, the schizes flows that it harbors and conceals. To substitute, for the private subject of castration, split into a subject of enunciation and a subject of the statement relating only to the two orders of personal images, the collective agents of enunciation that for their part refer to machinic arrangements. To overturn the theater of representation into the order of desiring production, 
this is the whole task of schizoanalysis. Force de travail. Here we have followed Martin Nicolaus's translation of Marx's Grundriss in translating this Marxian term as labor capacity instead of labor power. Translators. Note. Anti-Oedipus. For introduction to schizoanalysis. Translated by Robert Hurley and Mark Seem. 1. The social field. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg but also the father and the mother, or the child. Psychoanalysis acts as if it were the child, the father is sick only from his own childhood, but at the same time is forced to postulate a parental pre-existence, the child is sick only in relation to a father and a mother. This is clearly evident in the primal position of the father of the horde. Oedipus itself would be nothing without the identifications of the parents with the children, and the fact cannot be hidden that everything begins in the mind of the father, isn't that what you want, to kill me, to sleep with your mother? It is first of all a father's idea, thus Leos. It is the father who raises hell, and who brandishes the law, the mother tends to be obliging, we mustn't he make this into a scene, it's only a dream, a territoriality. Levi Strauss puts it very well, the initial theme of the key myth is the incest committed by the hero with the mother. Yet the idea that he is guilty seems to exist mainly in the mind of the father, who desires his son's death and schemes to bring it about. In the long run it is the father who appears guilty, through having tried to avenge himself, and it is he who is killed. This curious indifference toward incest appears in other myths. Point one Oedipus is first the idea of an adult paranoiac, before it is the childhood feeling of a neurotic. So it is that psychoanalysis has much difficulty extracting itself from an infinite regression, the father must have been a child, but was able to be a child only in relation to a father, who was himself a child, in relation to another father. How does a delirium begin? Perhaps the cinema is able to capture the movement of madness, precisely because it is not analytical and regressive, but explores a global field of coexistence. Witness a film by Nicholas Ray, supposedly representing the formation of a cortisone delirium, an overworked father, a high school teacher who works overtime for a radio taxi service and is being treated for heart trouble. He begins to rave about the educational system in general, the need to restore a pure race, the salvation of the social and moral order, then he passes to religion, the timeliness of a return to the Bible, Abraham. But what in fact did Abraham do? Well now, he killed or wanted to kill his son, and perhaps God's only error lies in having stayed his hand. But doesn't this man, the film's protagonist, have a son of his own? Hmm. What the film shows so well, to the shame of psychiatrists, is that every delirium is first of all the investment of a field that is social, economic, political, cultural, racial, and racist, pedagogical, and religious, the delirious person applies a delirium to his family and his son that overreaches them on all sides. Joseph Gable, presenting a case of paranoiac delirium with a strong politico-erotic content replete with suggestions for social reform, believes it possible to say that such a case is rare, and that, Moreover, its origins are not reconstructable. Point two, yet it is evident that there is never a delirium that does not possess this characteristic to a high degree, and that is not originally economic, political, and so forth, before being crushed in the psychiatric and psychoanalytic treadmill. 
Judge Schreiber would not deny this, nor his father, who invented the Pangymnastikon and a general pedagogical system. Everything changes, then, the infinite regression forced us to postulate a primacy of the father, but an always relative and hypothetical primacy that carried us to infinity, barring a shift into the position of an absolutely primary father, but it is clear that the viewpoint of regression is the result of abstraction. When we say the father is first in relation to the child, this proposition, devoid of meaning in itself, concretely means the following, the social investments are first in relation to the familial investments, which result solely from the application or the reduction, rebatment, of the social investments. To say that the father is first in relation to the child really amounts to saying that the investment of desire is in the first instance the investment of a social field into which the father and the child are plunged, simultaneously immersed. Let us again consider the example of the Mark Sands, as analyzed by Cardiner, he distinguishes between an adult alimentary anxiety linked to an endemic famine, and an infantile alimentary anxiety linked to a deficiency of maternal care. Point three: Not only is it impossible to derive the first anxiety from the second, but one cannot even consider, as Cardiner does, that the social investment corresponding to the first anxiety comes after the infantile familial investment of the second. For a determination of the social field is already invested in the second type of anxiety, namely, the rarity of women that explains how it is that the adults no less than the children are wary of them. In brief, what the child invests through the infantile experience, the mother's breast, and the familial structure is already a state of the breaks and the flows of the social field in its entirety, flows of women and of food, recordings, and distributions. Never is the adult an afterward of the child, but in the family both relate to the determinations of the field in which both the family and they are simultaneously immersed. Hence we are confronted by three unavoidable conclusions. 1. From the point of view of regression, whose meaning is only hypothetical, it is the father who is first in relation to the child. The paranoiac father oedipalizes the son. Guilt is an idea projected by the father before it is an inner feeling experienced by the son. The first error of psychoanalysis is in acting as if things began with the child. This leads psychoanalysis to develop an absurd theory of fantasy, in terms of which the father, the mother, and their real actions and passions must first be understood as fantasies of the child, the Freudian abandonment of the theme of seduction. 2. If regression taken in an absolute sense reveals itself to be inadequate, it is because this regression encloses us in simple reproduction or generation. Furthermore, taking organic bodies and organized persons as its object, the theory of regression merely attains the object of reproduction. The point of view of the cycle alone is categorical and absolute, because it attains production as the subject of reproduction, which is to say it attains the process of auto-production of the unconscious, a unity of history and of nature, from homo natura to homo historia. It is certainly not sexuality that is in the service of generation, but progressive or regressive generation that is in the service of sexuality as a cyclical movement by which the unconscious, always remaining subject, reproduces itself. There is, then, no longer any call for wondering which is first, the father or the child, because such a question can be raised only within the framework of familialism. The father is first in relation to the child, 
but only because what is first is the social investment in relation to the familial investment, the investment of the social field in which the father, the child, and the family as a subaggregate are at one and the same time immersed. The primacy of the social field as the terminus of the investment of desire defines the cycle, and the states through which a subject passes. The second error of psychoanalysis, made just as it was completing the separation of sexuality from reproduction, lies in having remained captive to an unrepentant familialism that condemned it to evolve solely within the movement of regression or progression. Even the psychoanalytic conception of repetition remains captive to such a movement. Point four. Three. Finally, the point of view of the community, which is disjunctive or takes account of the disjunctions in the cycle. Not only is generation second in relation to the cycle, but transmission is second in relation to an information or a communication. The genetic revolution occurred when it was discovered that, strictly speaking, there is no transmission of flows, but a communication of a code or an axiomatic, of a combinative apparatus, combinatoire, informing the flows. Such is also the case for the social field, its coding or its axiomatic first determine within it a communication of unconsciouses. This phenomenon of communication, which Freud touched on only marginally in his remarks on occultism, constitutes in fact the norm, and pushes into the background the problems of hereditary transmission that animated the Freudian controversy. It appears that, in the common social field, the first thing that the son represses, or has to repress, or tries to repress, is the unconscious of the father and the mother. The failure of that repression is the basis of neuroses. But this communication of unconscouses does not by any means take the family as its principle, it takes as its principle the commonality of the social field insofar as it is the object of the investment of desire. In all respects the family is never determining, but is always determined, first as a stimulus of departure, then as an aggregate of destination, and finally as an intermediary or an interception of communication. If the familial investment is only a dependence or an application of the unconscious investments of the social field and if this is just as true of the child as of the adult, if it is true that the child, through the mommy territoriality and the daddy law, already aims for the schizes and the encoded or axiomated flows of the social field then we must transport the essential difference to the heart of this domain. Delirium is the general matrix of every unconscious social investment. Every unconscious investment mobilizes a delirious interplay of disinvestments, of counterinvestments, of overinvestments. But we have seen in this context that there were two major types of social investment, segregative and nomadic, just as there were two poles of delirium, first, a paranoiac fascicizing, fascizans, type or pole that invests the formation of central sovereignty, over-invests it by making it the final eternal cause for all the other social forms of history, counter-invests the enclaves or the periphery, and disinvests every free figure of desire yes, I am your kind, and I belong to the superior. Race and class. And second, a schizo-revolutionary type or pole that follows the lines of escape of desire, breaches the wall and causes flows to move assembles its machines and its groups in fusion in the enclaves or at the periphery proceeding in an inverse fashion from that of the other pole, I am not your kind, I belong eternally to the inferior race, I am a beast, a black. Good people say that we must not flee, that to escape is not good, 
that it isn't effective, and that one must work for reforms. But the revolutionary knows that escape is revolutionary withdrawal, freaks provided one sweeps away the social cover on leaving, or causes a piece of the system to get lost in the shuffle. What matters is to break through the wall, even if one has to become black like John Brown. George Jackson I may take flight, but all the while I am fleeing, I will be looking for a weapon, 5. Doubtless there are astonishing oscillations of the unconscious, from one pole of delirium to the other, the way in which an expected revolutionary force, puissance, breaks free, sometimes even in the midst of the worst archaism, inversely, the way in which everything turns fascist or envelopes itself in fascism, the way in which it falls back into archaism. Or, staying on the level of literary examples, the case of Selene, the great victim of delirium who evolves while communicating more and more with the paranoia of his father. The case of Jack Kerouac, the artist possessing the soberest of means who took revolutionary flight, but who later finds himself immersed in dreams of a great America, and then in search of his Breton ancestors of the superior race. Isn't the destiny of American literature that of crossing limits and frontiers, causing deterritorialized flows of desire to circulate, but also always making these flows transport fascicizing, moralizing, Puritan, and familialist territorialities? These oscillations of the unconscious, these underground passages from one type of libidinal investment to the other often the coexistence of the two form one of the major objects of schizoanalysis. The two poles united by are taught in the formula, Heliogabalus the anarchist, the image of all human contradictions, and of the contradiction in principle. But no passage impairs or suppresses the difference in nature between the two, nomadism and segregation. If we are able to define this difference as that which separates paranoia and schizophrenia, it is because on the one hand we have distinguished the schizophrenic process, the breakthrough, from the accidents and relapses that hinder or interrupt it, the breakdown, and because on the other hand we have posited paranoia no less than schizophrenia as independent of all familial pseudo-ideologies, so as to make them bear directly upon the social field, every name in history, and not the name of the father. On the contrary, the nature of the familial investments depends on the breaks and the flows of the social field as they are invested in one type or another, at one pole or the other. And the child does not wait until he is an adult before grasping underneath father-mother the economic, financial, social, and cultural problems that cross through a family, his belonging or his desire to belong to a superior or an inferior race, the reactionary or the revolutionary tenor of a familial group with which he is already preparing his ruptures and his conformities. What a muddle, what an emulsion the family is, agitated by backwashes, pulled in one direction or another, in such a way that the Oedipal bacillus takes or doesn't take, imposes its mold or doesn't succeed in imposing it, pursuing directions of an entirely different nature that traverse the family from the exterior. What we mean is that Oedipus is born of an application or a reduction to personalized images, which presupposes a social investment of a paranoiac type which explains why Freud first discovers the familial romance and Oedipus while reflecting on paranoia. Oedipus is a dependency of the paranoiac territoriality, whereas the schizophrenic investment commands an entirely different determination, a family gasping for breath and stretched out over the dimensions of a social field that does not reclose or withdraw, 
a family as matrix for depersonalized partial objects, which plunge again and again into the torrential or depleted flux of a historic cosmos, a historic chaos. The matrical fissure of schizophrenia, as opposed to paranoiac castration, and the line of escape as opposed to the blue line, the blues. Oh mother! Farewell! With a long black shoe! Farewell! With communist party and a broken stocking! With your sagging belly! With your fear of Hitler! With your mouth of bad short stories! With your belly of strikes and smokestacks! With your chin of Trotsky and the Spanish War! With your voice singing for the decaying overbroken workers. With your eyes. With your eyes of Russia. With your eyes of no money. With your eyes of starving India. With your eyes of Czechoslovakia attacked by robots. With your eyes being led away by policemen to an ambulance with your eyes with the pancreas removed. With your eyes of appendix operation. With your eyes of abortion. With your eyes of ovaries removed. With your eyes of shock. With your eyes of lobotomy. With your eyes of divorce. 6. Why these words, paranoia and schizophrenia, which are like talking birds and girls' first names? Why do social investments follow this dividing line that gives them a specifically delirious content, recreating history in delirium? And what is this line, how can we situate schizophrenia and paranoia on either side of it? Our assumption is that everything happens on the body without organs, but this body has, as it were, two faces. Elias Conetti has clearly shown how the paranoiac organizes masses and packs. The paranoiac opposes them to one another, maneuvers them. The paranoiac engineers masses, he is the artist of the large molar aggregates, the statistical formations or gregariousnesses, the phenomena of organized crowds. He invests everything that falls within the province of large numbers. The night of the battle, Colonel Lawrence lines up the young naked corpses on the full body of the desert. Judge Schreiber attaches little men by the thousands to his body. It might be said that, of the two directions in physics the molar direction that goes toward the large numbers and the mass phenomena, and the molecular direction that on the contrary penetrates into singularities, their interactions and connections at a distance or between different orders the paranoiac has chosen the first, he practices macrophysics. And it could be said that by contrast the schizo goes in the other direction, that of microphysics, of molecules insofar as they no longer obey the statistical laws, waves and corpuscles, flows and partial objects that are no longer dependent upon the large numbers, infinitesimal lines of escape, instead of the perspectives of the large aggregates. Doubtless it would be a mistake to contrast these two dimensions in terms of the collective and the individual. On the one hand, the micro-unconscious presents no fewer arrangements, connections and interactions, although these arrangements are of an original type, on the other hand, the form of individualized persons does not belong to it, since it knows only partial objects and flows, but belongs instead to the laws of statistical distribution of the molar unconscious or the macro-unconscious. Freud was Darwinian, neo-Darwinian, when he said that in the unconscious everything was a problem of population, likewise, in the contemplation of multiplicities he saw a sign of psychosis. It is therefore more a matter of the difference between two kinds of collections or populations, the large aggregates and the micro-multiplicities. 
In both cases the investment is collective, it is an investment of a collective field, even a lone particle has an associated wave as a flow that defines the coexisting space of its presences. Every investment is collective, every fantasy is a group fantasy and in the sense a position of reality. But the two kinds of investments are radically different, according as the one bears upon the molar structures that subordinate the molecules, and the other on the contrary bears upon the molecular multiplicities that subordinate the structured crowd phenomena. One is a subjugated group investment, as much in its sovereign form as in its colonial formations of the gregarious aggregate, which socially and psychically represses the desire of persons, the other, a subject-group investment in the transverse multiplicities that convey desire as a molecular phenomenon, that is, as partial objects and flows, as opposed to aggregates and persons. It is true that social investments are made on the socius itself as a full body, and that their respective poles necessarily relate to the character or the map of the socius earth, despot, or capital money, for each social machine the two poles, paranoiac and schizophrenic, are distributed in varying ways. Whereas the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, properly speaking, do not operate on the socius, but on the body without organs in a pure state. It might then be said that the paranoiac, in the clinical sense of the term, makes us spectators to the imaginary birth of the mass phenomenon, and does so at a level that is still microscopic. The body without organs is like the cosmic egg, the giant molecule swarming with worms, bacilli, lilliputian figures, animal culls, and homunculi, with their organization and their machines, minute strings, ropes, teeth, fingernails, levers and pulleys, catapults, thus intruber the millions of spermatozoids in the sunbeams, or the souls that lead a brief existence as little men on his body. R. Todd says, this world of microbes, which is nothing more than coagulated nothingness. The two sides of the body without organs are, therefore, the side on which the mass phenomenon and the paranoiac investment corresponding to it are organized on a microscopic scale, and the other side on which, on a submicroscopic scale, the molecular phenomena and their schizophrenic investment are arranged. It is on the body without organs, as a pivot, as a frontier between the molar and the molecular, that the paranoia schizophrenia division is made. Are we to believe, then, that social investments are secondary projections, as if a large two-headed schizonoac, father of the primitive horde, were at the base of the socius in general? We have seen that this is not at all the case. The socius is not a projection of the body without organs, rather, the body without organs is the limit of the socius, its tangent of deterritorialization, the ultimate residue of a deterritorialized socius. The socius the earth, the body of the despot, capital money are clothed full bodies, just as the body without organs is a naked full body, but the latter exists at the limit, at the end, not at the origin. And doubtless the body without organs haunts all forms of socius. But in this very sense, if social investments can be said to be paranoiac or schizophrenic, it is to the extent that they have paranoia and schizophrenia as ultimate products under the determinate conditions of capitalism. From the standpoint of a universal clinical theory, paranoia and schizophrenia can be presented as the two extreme oscillations of a pendulum oscillating around the position of a socius as a full body and, at the limit, of a body without organs, 
one of whose sides is occupied by the molar aggregates, and the other populated by molecular elements. But one can also present this as a single line along which the different forms of socius, their planes, and their large aggregates, are arranged, on each of these planes there is a paranoiac dimension, another that is perverse, a kind of familial position, and a dotted line of escape or schizoid breakthrough. The major line ends at the body without organs, and there it either passes through the wall, opening onto the molecular elements where it becomes in actual fact what it was from the start, the schizophrenic process, the pure schizophrenic process of deterritorialization. Or it strikes the wall, rebounds off it, and falls back into the most miserably arranged territorialities of the modern world as simulacra of the preceding planes, getting caught up in the asylum aggregate of paranoia and schizophrenia as clinical entities, in the artificial aggregates or societies established by perversion, in the familial aggregate of Oedipal neuroses. To the molecular unconscious. What is the meaning of this distinction between two regions, one molecular and the other molar, one micropsychic or micrological, the other statistical and gregarious? Is this anything more than a metaphor lending the unconscious a distinction grounded in physics, when we speak of an opposition between intraatomic phenomena and the mass phenomena that operate through statistical accumulation, obeying the laws of aggregates? But in reality the unconscious belongs to the realm of physics, the body without organs and its intensities are not metaphors, but matter itself. Nor is it our intention to revive the question of an individual psychology and a collective psychology, and of the priority of the one or the other, this distinction, as it appears in group psychology and the analysis of the ego, remains completely stymied by Oedipus. In the unconscious there are only populations, groups, and machines. When we posit in one case an involuntariness, an involuntaire, of the social and technical machines, in the other case an unconscious of the desiring machines, it is a question of a necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. Some of these are elementary forces by means of which the unconscious is produced, the others, resultants reacting on the first, statistical aggregates through which the unconscious is represented and already suffers psychic and social repression of its elementary productive forces. But how can we speak of machines in this microphysical or micropsychic region, there where there is desire that is to say, not only its functioning, but formation and auto-production? A machine works according to the previous intercommunications of its structure and the positioning of its parts, but does not set itself into place any more than it forms or reproduces itself. This is even the point around which the usual polemic between vitalism and mechanism revolves, the machine's ability to account for the workings of the organism, but its fundamental inability to account for its formations. From machines, mechanism abstracts a structural unity in terms of which it explains the functioning of the organism. Vitalism invokes an individual and specific unity of the living, which every machine presupposes insofar as it is subordinate to organic continuance, and insofar as it extends the latter's autonomous formations on the outside. But it should be noted that, in one way or another, the machine and desire thus remain in an extrinsic relationship, either because desire appears as an effect determined by a system of mechanical causes, or because the machine is itself a system of means in terms of the aims of desire. The link between the two remains secondary and indirect, 
both in the new means appropriated by desire and in the derived desires produced by the machines. A profound text by Samuel Butler, The Book of the Machines, nevertheless allows us to go beyond these points of view 7 It is true that this text seems at first merely to contrast the two common arguments, the one according to which the organisms are for the moment only more perfect machines, whether those things which we deem most purely spiritual are anything but disturbances of equilibrium in an infinite series of levers, beginning with those levers that are too small for microscopic. Detection 8, the other according to which machines are never more than extensions of the organism, the lower animals keep all their limbs at home in their bodies, but many of man's are loose, and lie about detached, now here and now there, in various parts of the world 9. But there is a Butlerian manner for carrying each of the arguments to an extreme point where it can no longer be opposed to the other, a point of non-difference or dispersion. For one thing, Butler is not content to say that machines extend the organism, but asserts that they are really limbs and organs lying on the body without organs of a society, which men will appropriate according to their power and their wealth, and whose poverty deprives them as if they were mutilated organisms. For another, he is not content to say that organisms are machines, but asserts that they contain such an abundance of parts that they must be compared to very different parts of distinct machines, each relating to the others, engineered in combination with the others. What is essential is this double movement whereby Butler drives both arguments beyond their very limits. He shatters the vitalist argument by calling in question the specific or personal unity of the organism, and the mechanist argument even more decisively, by calling in question the structural unity of the machine. It is said that machines do not reproduce themselves, or that they only reproduce themselves through the intermediary of man, but does anyone say that the red clover has no reproductive system because the bumblebee, and the bumblebee only, must aid and abet it before it can reproduce? No one. The bumblebee is a part of the reproductive system of the clover. Each one of ourselves has sprung from minute animal culls whose entity was entirely distinct from our own. These creatures are part of our reproductive system, then why not we part of that of the machines? We are misled by considering any complicated machine as a single thing, in truth it is a city or a society, each member of which was bred truly after its kind. We see a machine as a whole, we call it by a name and individualize it, we look at our own limbs, and know that the combination forms an individual which springs from a single center of reproductive action, we therefore assume that there can be no reproductive action which does not arise from a single center, but this assumption is unscientific, and the bare fact that no vapor engine was ever made entirely by another, or two others, of its own kind, is not sufficient to warrant us in saying that vapor engines have no reproductive system. The truth is that each part of every vapor engine is bred by its own special breeders, whose function is to breed that part, and that only, while the combination of the parts into a whole forms another department of the mechanical reproductive system 10. In passing, Butler encounters the phenomenon of surplus value of code, when a part of a machine captures within its own code a code fragment of another machine, and thus owes its reproduction to a part of another machine, the red clover and the bumblebee, or the orchid and the male wasp that it attracts and intercepts by carrying on its flower the image and the odor of the female wasp. At this point of dispersion of the two arguments, it becomes immaterial whether one says that machines are organs, or organs, 
machines. The two definitions are exact equivalents, man as a vertebromachinate mammal, or as an aphidian parasite of machines. What is essential is not in the passage to infinity itself the infinity composed of machine parts or the temporal infinity of the animal culls but rather in what this passage blossoms into. Once the structural unity of the machine has been undone, once the personal and specific unity of the living has been laid to rest, a direct link is perceived between the machine and desire, the machine passes to the heart of desire, the machine is desiring and desire, machined. Desire is not in the subject, but the machine in desire with the residual subject off to the side, alongside the machine, around the entire periphery, a parasite of machines, an accessory of vertebromachinate desire. In a word, the real difference is not between the living and the machine, vitalism and mechanism, but between two states of the machine that are two states of the living as well. The machine taken in its structural unity, the living taken in its specific and even personal unity, are mass phenomena or molar aggregates, for this reason each points to the extrinsic existence of the other. And even if they are differentiated and mutually opposed, it is merely as two paths in the same statistical direction. But in the other more profound or intrinsic direction of multiplicities there is interpenetration, direct communication between the molecular phenomena and the singularities of the living, that is to say, between the small machines scattered in every machine, and the small formations dispersed in every organism, a domain of non-difference between the microphysicae and the biological, there being as many living beings in the machine as there are machines in the living. Why speak of machines in this domain, when there would seem to be none, strictly speaking no structural unity nor any preformed mechanical interconnections? But there is the possibility of formation of such machines in indefinitely superimposed relays, in working cycles that mesh with each other which, once assembled, will obey the laws of thermodynamics, but which in the process of assembly do not depend on these laws, since the chain of assembly begins in a domain where by definition there are as yet no statistical laws. At this level, functioning and formation are still confounded as in the molecule, and, starting from this level, two diverging paths open up, of which one will lead to the more or less regular accumulations of individuals, the other to the perfectings of the individual organization whose simplest schema is the formation of a pipe. The real difference is therefore between on the one hand the molar machines whether social, technical, or organic and on the other the desiring machines, which are of a molecular order. Desiring renekines are the following, formative machines, whose very misfirings are functional, and whose functioning is indiscernible from their formation, chronogenous machines engaged in their own assembly, montage, operating by non-localizable intercommunications and dispersed localizations, bringing into play processes of temporalization, fragmented formations and detached parts, with a surplus value of code, and where the whole is itself produced alongside the parts, as a part apart or, as Butler would say, in another department that fits the whole over the other parts, machines in the strict sense, because they proceed by breaks and flows, associated waves and particles, associative flows and partial objects, inducing always at a distance transverse connections, inclusive disjunctions, and polyvoca conjunctions, thereby producing selections, detachments, and remainders, with a transference of individuality, in a generalized schizogenesis whose elements are the schizos flows. 
subsequently rather, we should say on the other hand when the machines become unified at the structural level of techniques and institutions that give them an existence as visible as a plate of steel, when the living, too, become structured by the statistical unities of their persons and their species, varieties, and locales, when a machine appears as a single object, and a living organism appears as a single subject, when the connections become global and specific, the disjunctions exclusive, and the conjunctions biunivocal, then desire does not need to project itself into these forms that have become opaque. These forms are immediately molar manifestations, statistical determinations of desire and of its own machines. They are the same machines, there is no difference in nature here, as organic, technical, or social machines apprehended in their mass phenomenon, to which they become subordinated, there, as desiring machines apprehended in their submicroscopic singularities that subordinate the mass phenomena. That is why from the start we have rejected the idea that desiring machines belong to the domain of dreams or the imaginary, and that they stand in for the other machines. There is only desire and environments, fields, forms of herd instinct. Stated differently, the molecular desiring machines are in themselves the investment of the large molar machines or of the configurations that the desiring machines form according to the laws of large numbers in either or both senses of subordination, in one sense and the other of subordination. Desiring machines in one sense, but organic, technical, or social machines in the other, these are the same machines under determinate conditions. By determinate conditions we mean those statistical forms into which the machines enter as so many stable forms, unifying, structuring, and proceeding by means of large heavy aggregates, the selective pressures that group the parts retain some of them and exclude others, organizing the crowds. These are therefore the same machines, but not at all the same regime, the same relationships of magnitude, or the same uses of synthesis. It is only at the submicroscopic level of desiring machines that there exists a functionalism machinic arrangements, an engineering of desire, for it is only there that functioning and formation, use and assembly, product and production merge. A molar functionalism is false, since the organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function, and the technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used but imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. Only what is not produced in the same way it functions has a meaning, and also a purpose, an intention. The desiring machines on the contrary represent nothing, signify nothing, mean nothing, and are exactly what one makes of them, what is made with them, what they make in themselves. Desiring machines work according to regimes of synthesis that have no equivalent in the large aggregates. Jacques Monod has defined the originality of these synthesis, from the standpoint of a molecular biology or of a microscopic cybernetics without regard to the traditional opposition between mechanism and vitalism. Here the fundamental traits of synthesis are the indifferent nature of the chemical signals, the indifference to the substrate, and the indirect character of the interactions. Such formulas as these are negative only in appearance, and in relation to the laws of aggregates, but must be understood positively in terms of force, puissance. Between the substrate of an allosteric enzyme and the ligands prompting or inhibiting its activity there exists no chemically necessary relationship of structure or of reactivity. 
an allosteric protein should be seen as a specialized product of molecular engineering, enabling an interaction, positive or negative, to come about between compounds without chemical affinity, and thereby eventually subordinating any reaction to the intervention of compounds that are chemically foreign and indifferent to this reaction. The way in which allosteric interactions work hence permits a complete freedom in the choice of controls. And these controls, having no chemical requirements to answer to, will be the more responsive to physiological requirements, and will accordingly be selected for the extent to which they confer heightened coherence and efficiency upon the cell or organism. In a word, the very gratuitousness of these systems, giving molecular evolution a practically limitless field for exploration and experiment, enabled it to elaborate the huge network of cybernetic interconnections. How, starting from this domain of chance or of real inorganization, large configurations are organized that necessarily reproduce a structure under the action of DNA and its segments, the genes, performing veritable lottery drawings, creating switching points as lines of selection or evolution this, indeed, is what all the stages of the passage from the molecular to the molar demonstrate, such as this passage appears in the organic machines, but no less so in the social machines with other laws and other figures. In this sense it was possible to insist on a common characteristic of human cultures and of living species, as Markov chains, aleatory phenomena that are partially dependent. In the genetic code as in the social codes, what is termed a signifying chain is more a jargon than a language, language, composed of non-signifying elements that have a meaning or an effect of signification only in the large aggregates that they constitute through a linked drawing of elements, a partial dependence, and a superposition of relays plus it is not a matter of biologizing human history, nor of anthropologizing natural history. It is a matter of showing the common participation of the social machines and the organic machines in the desiring machines. At man's most basic stratum, the ID, the schizophrenic cell, the schizo molecules, their chains, and their jargons. There is a whole biology of schizophrenia, molecular biology is itself schizophrenic as is microphysics. But inversely schizophrenia the theory of schizophrenia is biological, biocultural, inasmuch as it examines the machinic connections of a molecular order, their distribution into maps of intensity on the giant molecule of the body without organs, and the statistical accumulations that form and select the large aggregates. Zondi set out on this molecular path, discovering a genie unconscious that he contrasted with the Freudian individual unconscious as well as with Jung's collective unconscious. He often calls this genie or genealogical unconscious familial, and Zondi himself went on to study schizophrenia using familial aggregates as his units of measure. But the genie unconscious is familial only to a very small degree, much less so than Freud's unconscious, since the diagnosis is carried out by comparing desire to the photographs of hermaphrodites, assassins, etc., instead of reducing it as usual to the images of daddy-mommy. Finally some relation to the outside. A whole alphabet, an entire axiomatic done with photos of mad people, this has to be tried, testing the need for paternal feeling against a series of portraits of assassins. It is no use saying this remains within the bounds of Oedipus, the truth is that it throws them open in a remarkable way. 
the hereditary genes of drives therefore play the role of simple stimuli that enter into variable combinations following vectors that survey an entire social historical field in analysis of destiny. In point of fact, the truly molecular unconscious cannot confine itself to genes as its units of reproduction, these units are still expressive, and lead to molar formations. Molecular biology teaches us that it is only the DNA that is reproduced, and not the proteins. Proteins are both products and units of production, they are what constitutes the unconscious as a cycle or as the auto-production of the unconscious the ultimate molecular elements in the arrangement of the desiring machines and the synthesis of desire. We have seen that, through reproduction and its objects, defined familially or genetically, it is always the unconscious that produces itself in a cyclical orphan movement, a cycle of destiny where it always remains a subject. It is precisely on this point that the statutory independence of sexuality with regard to generation rests. Zondi senses this direction according to which one must go beyond the molar to the molecular so acutely that he takes exception to all statistical interpretations of what is wrongly called his test. What is more, he calls for going beyond contents toward the realm of functions. But he makes this advance, follows this direction, only by going from aggregates or classes toward categories, of which he establishes a systematically closed list categories that are still only expressive forms of existence that a subject is meant to choose and combine freely. For this reason Zondi misses the internal or molecular elements of desire, the nature of their machinic choices, arrangements, and combinations. He also misses the real question of schizoanalysis, what drives your own desiring machines? What is their functioning? What are the synthesis into which they enter and operate? What use do you make of them, in all the transitions that extend from the molecular to the molar and inversely, and that constitute the cycle whereby the unconscious, remaining a subject, produces and reproduces itself? We use the term libido to designate the specific energy of desiring machines, and the transformations of this energy numen and voluptas are never desexualizations or sublimations. This terminology indeed seems extremely arbitrary. Considering the two ways in which the desiring machines must be viewed, what they have to do with a properly sexual energy is not immediately clear, either they are assigned to the molecular order that is their own, or they are assigned to the molar order where they form the organic or social machines, and invest organic or social surroundings. It is in fact difficult to present sexual energy as directly cosmic and intraatomic, and at the same time as directly socio-historical. It would be futile to say that love has to do with proteins and society. This would amount to reviving yet once more the old attempts at liquidating Freudianism, by substituting for the libido a vague cosmic energy capable of all of the metamorphoses, or a kind of socialized energy capable of all the investments. Or would we do better to review Reich's final attempt, involving a biogenesis that not without justification is qualified as a schizoparanoiac mode of reasoning? It will be remembered that Reich concluded in favor of an intraatomic cosmic energy the argon generative of an electrical flux and carrying submicroscopic particles, the bions. This energy produced differences in potential or intensities distributed on the body considered from a molecular viewpoint, and was associated with the mechanics of fluids in this same body considered from a molar viewpoint. What defined the libido as sexuality was therefore the association of the two modes of operation, mechanical and electrical, 
in a sequence with two poles, molar and molecular, mechanical tension, electrical charge, electrical discharge, mechanical relaxation. Reich thought he had thus overcome the alternative between mechanism and vitalism, since these functions, mechanical and electrical, existed in matter in general, but were combined in a particular sequence within the living. And above all he upheld the basic psychoanalytic truth, the supreme disavowal of which he was able to denounce in Freud, the independence of sexuality with regard to reproduction, the subordination of progressive or regressive reproduction to sexuality as a cycle. If the details of Reich's final theory are taken into consideration, we admit that its simultaneously schizophrenic and paranoiac nature is no obstacle where we are concerned on the contrary. We admit that any comparison of sexuality with cosmic phenomena such as electrical storms, the blue color of the sky and the blue-gray of atmospheric haze, the blue of the argon, St. Elmo's fire, and the bluish formations of sunspot activity, fluids and flows, matter and particles, in the end appear to us more adequate than the reduction of sexuality to the pitiful little familialist secret. We think that Lawrence and Miller have a more accurate evaluation of sexuality than Freud, even from the viewpoint of the famous scientificity. It is not the neurotic stretched out on the couch who speaks to us of love, of its force and its despair, but the mute stroll of the schizo, lengths outing in the mountains and under the stars, the immobile voyage in intensities on the body without organs. As to the whole of Reichian theory, it possesses the incomparable advantage of showing the double pole of the libido, as a molecular formation on the submicroscopic scale, and as an investment of the molar formations on the scale of social and organic aggregates. All that is missing is the confirmations of common sense, why, in what sense is the sexuality? Cynicism has said, or claimed to have said, everything there is to say about love, that it is a matter of a copulation of social and organic machines on a large scale, at bottom, love is in the organs, at bottom, love is a matter of economic determinations, money. But what is properly cynical is to claim a scandal where there is none to be found, and to pass for bold while lacking boldness. Better the delirium of common sense than its platitude. For the prime evidence points to the fact that desire does not take as its object persons or things, but the entire surroundings that it traverses, the vibrations and flows of every sort to which it is joined, introducing therein breaks and captures an always nomadic and migrant desire, characterized first of all by its gigantism, no one has shown this more clearly than Charles Fourier. In a word, the social as well as biological surroundings are the object of unconscious investments that are necessarily desiring or libidinal, in contrast with the preconscious investments of need or of interest. The libido as sexual energy is the direct investment of masses, of large aggregates, and of social and organic fields. We have difficulty understanding what principle psychoanalysis uses to support its conception of desire, when it maintains that the libido must be desexualized or even sublimated in order to proceed to the social investments, and inversely that the libido only resexualizes these investments during the course of pathological regression. Unless the assumption of such a conception is still familialism that is, an assumption holding that sexuality operates only in the family, and must be transformed in order to invest larger aggregates. The truth is that sexuality is everywhere, the way a bureaucrat fondles his records, a judge administers justice, 
a businessman causes money to circulate, the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, and so on. And there is no need to resort to metaphors, any more than for the libido to go by way of metamorphoses. Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Flags, nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused. A revolutionary machine is nothing if it does not acquire at least as much force as these coercive machines have for producing breaks and mobilizing flows. It is not through a desexualizing extension that the libido invests the large aggregates. On the contrary, it is through a restriction, a blockage, and a reduction that the libido is made to repress its flows in order to contain them in the narrow cells of the type couple, family, person, objects. And doubtless such a blockage is necessarily justified, the libido does not come to consciousness except in relation to a given body, a given person that it takes as object. But our object choice itself refers to a conjunction of flows of life and of society that this body and this person intercept, receive, and transmit, always within a biological, social, and historical field where we are equally immersed or with which we communicate. The persons to whom our loves are dedicated, including the parental persons, intervene only as points of connection, of disjunction, of conjunction of flows whose libidinal tenor of a properly unconscious investment they translate. Thus no matter how well grounded the love blockage is, it curiously changes its function, depending on whether it engages desire in the edible impasses of the couple and the family in the service of the repressive machines, or whether on the contrary it condenses a free energy capable of fueling a revolutionary machine. Here again, everything has already been said by Fourier, when he shows the two contrary directions of the captivation or the mechanization of the passions. But we always make love with worlds. And our love addresses itself to this libidinal property of our lover, to either close himself off or open up to more spacious worlds, to masses and large aggregates. There is always something statistical in our loves, and something belonging to the laws of large numbers. And isn't it in this way that we must understand the famous formula of Marx, the relationship between man and woman is the direct, natural, and necessary relation of person to person. That is, the relationship between the two sexes, man and woman, is only the measure of the relationship of sexuality in general, insofar as it invests large aggregates, man and man? Whence what came to be called the species determination of the sexuality of the two sexes? And must it not also be said that the phallus is not one sex, but sexuality in its entirety, which is to say the sign of the large aggregate invested by the libido, whence the two sexes necessarily derive, both in their separation, the two homosexual series of man and man, woman and woman, and in their statistical relations within this aggregate? But Marx says something even more mysterious, that the true difference is not the difference between the two sexes, but the difference between the human sex and the non-human sex eleven it is clearly not a question of animals, nor of animal sexuality. Something quite different is involved. If sexuality is the unconscious investment of the large molar aggregates, it is because on its other side sexuality is identical with the interplay of the molecular elements that constitute these aggregates under determinate conditions. The dwarfism of desire as a correlate to its gigantism. Sexuality and the desiring machines are one and the same inasmuch as these machines are present and operating in the social machines, in their field, their formation, 
their functioning. Desiring machines are the non-human sex, the molecular machinic elements, their arrangements, and their synthesis, without which there would be neither a human sex specifically determined in the large aggregates, nor a human sexuality capable of investing these aggregates. In a few sentences Marx, who is nonetheless so miserly and reticent where sexuality is concerned, exploded something that will hold Freud and all of psychoanalysis forever captive, the anthropomorphic representation of sex. What we call anthropomorphic representation is just as much the idea that there are two sexes as the idea that there is only one. We know how Freudianism is permeated by this bizarre notion that there is finally only one sex, the masculine, in relation to which the woman, the feminine, is dent as a lack, an absence. It could be thought at first that such a hypothesis founds the omnipotence of a male homosexuality. Yet this is not at all the case, what is founded here is rather the statistical aggregate of intersexual loves. For if the woman is defined as a lack in relation to the man, the man in his turn lacks what is lacking in the woman, simply in another fashion, the idea of a single sex necessarily leads to the erection of a phallus as an object on high, which distributes lack as two non-superimposable sides and makes the two sexes communicate in a common absence castration. Women, as psychoanalysts, or psychoanalyzed, can then rejoice in showing man the way, and in recuperating equality in difference. Whence the irresistibly comical nature of the formulas according to which one gains access to desire through castration. But the idea that there are two sexes, after all, is no better. This time, like Melanie Klein, one attempts to define the female sex by means of positive characteristics, even if they be terrifying. At least in this way one avoids phallocentrism, if not anthropomorphism. But this time, far from founding the communication between the two sexes, one founds instead their separation into two homosexual series that remain statistical. And one does not by any means escape castration. It is simply that castration, instead of being the principle of sex conceived as the masculine sex, the great castrated soaring phallus, becomes the result of sex conceived as the feminine sex, the little hidden absorbed penis. We maintain therefore that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar representation of sexuality. Castration is the universal belief that brings together and disperses both men and women under the yoke of one and the same illusion of consciousness, and makes them adore this yoke. Every attempt to determine the non-human nature of sex for example, the great other in Lakin while conserving myth and castration, is defeated from the start. And what does Jean-Francois Lyotard mean, in his commentary so profound, nevertheless on Marx's text, when he sees the opening of the non-human as having to be the entry of the subject into desire through castration, twelve long live castration, so that desire may be strong. Only fantasies are truly desired? What a perverse, human, all too human idea. An idea originating in bad conscience, and not in the unconscious. Anthropomorphic molar representation culminates in the very thing that founds it, the ideology of lack. The molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration, because partial objects lack nothing and form free multiplicities as such, because the multiple breaks never cease producing flows, instead of repressing them, cutting them at a single stroke the only break capable of exhausting them, 
because the synthesis constitute local and nonspecific connections, inclusive disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, everywhere a microscopic transsexuality, resulting in the woman containing as many men as the man, and the man as many women, all capable of entering men with women, women with men into relations of production of desire that overturn the statistical order of the sexes. Making love is not just becoming as one, or even two, but becoming as a hundred thousand. Desiring machines or the non-Hunian sex, not one or even two sexes, but n sexes. Schizoanalysis is the variable analysis of the n sexes in a subject, beyond the anthropomorphic representation that society imposes on this subject, and with which it represents its own sexuality. The schizoanalytic slogan of the desiring revolution will be first of all, to each its own sexes. 3. Psychoanalysis and Capitalism The schizoanalytic argument is simple, desire is a machine, a synthesis of machines, a machinic arrangement desiring machines. The order of desire is the order of production, all production is at once desiring production and social production. We therefore reproach psychoanalysis for having stifled this order of production, for having shunted it into representation. Far from showing the boldness of psychoanalysis, this idea of unconscious representation marks from the outset its bankruptcy or its abnegation, an unconscious that no longer produces, but is content to believe. The unconscious believes in Oedipus, it believes in castration, in the law. It is doubtless true that the psychoanalyst would be the first to say that, everything considered, belief is not an act of the unconscious, it is always the preconscious that believes. Shouldn't it even be said that it is the psychoanalyst who believes the psychoanalyst in each of us? Would belief then be an effect on the conscious material that the unconscious representation exerts from a distance? But inversely, who or what reduced the unconscious to the state of representation, if not first of all a system of beliefs put in the place of productions? In reality, social production becomes alienated in allegedly autonomous beliefs at the same time that desiring production becomes enticed into allegedly unconscious representations. And as we have seen, it is the same agency the family that performs this double operation, distorting and disfiguring social desiring production, leading it into an impasse. Thus the link between representation belief and the family is not accidental, it is of the essence of representation to be a familial representation. But production is not thereby suppressed, it continues to rumble, to throb beneath the representative agency, instance representative, that suffocates it, and that it in return can make resonate to the breaking point. Thus in order to keep an effective grip on the zones of production, representation must inflate itself with all the power of myth and tragedy, it must give a mythic and tragic presentation of the family and a familial presentation of myth and tragedy. Yet aren't myth and tragedy, too, production's forms of production? Certainly not, they are production only when brought into connection with real social production, real desiring production. Otherwise they are ideological forms, which have taken the place of the units of production. Who believes in all this Oedipus, castration, etc.? The Greeks. Then the Greeks did not produce in the same way they believed. The Hellenists. Do the Hellenists believe that the Greeks produced according to their beliefs? This is true at least of the 19th century Hellenists, 
about whom Engels said, you'd think they really believed in all that in myth, in tragedy. Is it the unconscious that represents itself through Oedipus and castration? Or is it the psychoanalyst the psychoanalyst in us all, who represents the unconscious in this way? For never has Engels's remark regained so much meaning, you'd think the psychoanalysts really believed in all this in myth, in tragedy. They go on believing, whereas the Hellenists have long since stopped. The Schreber case again applies, Schreber's father invented and fabricated astonishing little machines, sadistico-paranoiac machines for example head straps with a metallic shank and leather bands, for restrictive use on children, for making them straighten up and behave. These machines play no role whatever in the Freudian analysis. Perhaps it would have been more difficult to crush the entire socio-political content of Schreber's delirium if these desiring machines of the father had been taken into account, as well as their obvious participation in a pedagogical social machine in general. For the real question is this, of course the father acts on the child's unconscious but does he act as a head of a family in an expressive familial transmission, or rather as the agent of a machine, in a machinic information or communication. Schreber's desiring machines communicate with those of his father, but it is in this very way that they are from early childhood the libidinal investment of a social field. In this field the father has a role only as an agent of production and anti-production, Freud, on the contrary, chooses the first path, it is not the father who indicates the action of machines, but just the opposite, thereafter there is no longer even any reason for considering machines, whether as desiring machines or as social machines. In return, the father will be inflated with all the forces of myth and religion and with phylogenesis, so as to ensure that the little familial representation has the appearance of being coextensive with the field of delirium. The production couple the desiring machines and the social field gives way to a representative couple of an entirely different nature, family myth. Once again, have you ever seen a child at play, how he already populates the technical social machines with his own desiring machines, oh sexuality while the father or mother remains in the background, from whom the child borrows parts and gears according to his need, and who are there as agents of transmission, reception, and interception, kindly agents of production or suspicious agents of anti-production. Why was mythic and tragic representation accorded such a senseless privilege? Why were expressive forms and a whole theater installed there where there were fields, workshops, factories, units of production? The psychoanalyst parks his circus in the dumbfounded unconscious, a real P.T. Barnum in the fields and in the factory. That is what Miller, and already Lawrence, have to say against psychoanalysis, the living are not believers, the seers do not believe in myth and tragedy by retracing the paths to the earlier heroic life. You defeat the very element and quality of the heroic, for the hero never looks backward, nor does he ever doubt his powers. Hamlet was undoubtedly a hero to himself, and for every Hamlet born the only true course to pursue is the very course which Shakespeare describes. But the question, it seems to me, is this, are we born Hamlets? Were you born Hamlet? Or did you not rather create the type in yourself? Whether this be so or not, what seems infinitely more important is why revert to myth. This ideational rubbish out of which our world has erected its cultural edifice is now, by a critical irony, being given its poetic immolation, its mythos, 
through a kind of writing which, because it is of the disease and therefore beyond, clears the ground for fresh superstructures. In my own mind the thought of fresh superstructures is abhorrent, but this is merely the awareness of a process and not the process itself. Actually, in process, I believe with each line I write that I am scouring the womb, giving it the curette, as it were. Behind this process lies the idea not of edifice and superstructure, which is culture and hence false, but of continuous birth, renewal, life, life. In the myth there is no life for us. Only the myth lives in the myth. This ability to produce the myth is born out of awareness, out of ever-increasing consciousness. That is why, speaking of the schizophrenic nature of our age, I said until the process is completed the belly of the world shall be the third eye. Now, Brother Ambrose, just what did I mean by that? What could I mean except that from this intellectual world in which we are swimming there must body forth a new world, but this new world can only be bodied forth in so far as it is conceived. And to conceive there must first be desire. Desire is instinctual and holy, it is only through desire that we bring about the Immaculate Conception 13. Everything is said in these pages from Miller, Oedipus, or Hamlet, led to the point of autocritique, the expressive forms myth and tragedy denounced as conscious beliefs or illusions, nothing more than ideas, the necessity of a scouring of the unconscious, schizoanalysis as a curatage of the unconscious, the matrical fissure in opposition to the line of castration, the splendid affirmation of the orphan and producer unconscious, the exaltation of the process as a schizophrenic process of deterritorialization that must produce a new earth, and even the functioning of the desiring machines against tragedy, against the fatal drama of the personality, against the inevitable confusion between mask and actor. It is obvious that Miller's correspondent, Michael Frankel, does not understand. He talks like a psychoanalyst, or like a 19th century Hellenist, yes, myth, tragedy, Oedipus, and Hamlet are good expressions, pregnant forms, they express the true permanent drama of desire and knowledge. Frankel calls to his aid all the commonplaces, Skopenhauer and the Nietzsche of the birth of tragedy. He thinks Miller is unaware of these things, and never wonders for a second why Nietzsche himself broke with the birth of tragedy, why he stopped believing in tragic representation. Michel Foucault has convincingly shown what break, Coupure, introduced the eruption of production into the world of representation. Production can be that of labor or that of desire, it can be social or desiring, it calls forth forces that no longer permit themselves to be contained in representation, and it calls forth flows and breaks that break through representation, traversing it through and through, an immense expanse of shade extended beneath the level of representation. Point 14 and this collapse or sinking of the classical world of representation is assigned a date by Foucault, the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. So it seems that the situation is far more complex than we made it out to be, since psychoanalysis participates to the highest degree in this discovery of the units of production which subjugate all possible representations rather than being subordinated to them. Just as Ricardo founds political or social economy by discovering quantitative labor as the principle of every representable value, Freud founds desiring economy by discovering the quantitative libido as the principle of every representation of the objects and aims of desire. 
Freud discovers the subjective nature or abstract essence of desire, just as Ricardo discovers the subjective nature or abstract essence of labor, beyond all representations that would bind it to objects, to aims, or even to particular sources. Freud is thus the first to disengage desire itself, le desir tout court, as Ricardo disengages labor itself, le travail tout court, and thereby the sphere of production that effectively eclipses representation. And subjective abstract desire, like subjective abstract labor, is inseparable from a movement of deterritorialization that discovers the interplay of machines and their agents underneath all the specific determinations that still link desire or labor to a given person, to a given object in the framework of representation. Desiring production and machines, psychic apparatuses and machines of desire, desiring machines and the assembling of an analytic machine suited to decode them, the domain of free synthesis where everything is possible, partial connections, included disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, polyvocal flows and chains, transductive breaks, the relation of desiring machines as formations of the unconscious with the molar formations that they constitute statistically in organized crowds, and the apparatus of social and psychic repression resulting from these formations such as the composition of the analytic field. And this subrepresentative field will continue to survive and work, even through Oedipus, even through myth and tragedy, which nevertheless mark the reconciliation of psychoanalysis with representation. The fact remains that a conflict cuts across the whole of psychoanalysis, the conflict between mythic and tragic familial representation and social and desiring production. For myth and tragedy are systems of symbolic representations that still refer desire to determinate exterior conditions as well as to particular objective codes the body of the earth, the despotic body and that in this way confound the discovery of the abstract or subjective essence. It has been remarked in this context that each time Freud brings to the fore the study of the psychic apparatuses, the social and desiring machines, the mechanisms of the drives, and the institutional mechanisms, his interest in myth and tragedy tends to diminish, while at the same time he denounces in Jung, then in rank, the re-establishment of an exterior representation of the essence of desire as an objective desire, alienated in myth or tragedy plus. How can this very complex ambivalence of psychoanalysis be explained? Several different things must be distinguished. In the first place, symbolic representation indeed grasps the essence of desire, but by referring it to large objectifies, objectites, as to the specific elements that determine its objects, aims, and sources. It is in this way that myth ascribes desire to the element of the earth as a full body, and to the territorial code that distributes prescriptions and prohibitions. Likewise tragedy ascribes desire to the full body of the despot and to the corresponding imperial code. Consequently, the understanding of symbolic representations may consist in a systematic phenomenology of these elements and objectities, as in the old Hellenists or even Jung, or else these representations may be understood by historical study that assigns them to their real and objective social conditions, as with recent Hellenists. Viewed in the latter fashion, representation implies a certain lag, and expresses less a stable element than the conditioned passage from one element to another, Mythic representation does not express the element of the earth, but rather the conditions under which this element fades before the despotic element, and tragic representation does not express the despotic element properly speaking, 
but the conditions under which in 5th century Greece, for example this element diminishes in favor of the new order of the city-state 15 it is obvious that neither one of these ways of treating myth or tragedy is suited to the psychoanalytic approach. The psychoanalytic method is quite different, rather than referring symbolic representation to determinate objectities and to objective social conditions, psychoanalysis refers them to the subjective and universal essence of desire as libido. Thus the operation of decoding in psychoanalysis can no longer signify what it signifies in the sciences of man, the discovery of the secret of such and such a code. Psychoanalysis must undo the code so as to attain the quantitative and qualitative flows of libido that traverse dreams, fantasies, and pathological formations as well as myth, tragedy, and the social formations. Psychoanalytic interpretation does not consist in competing with codes, adding a code to the codes already recognized, but in decoding in an absolute way, in eliciting something that is uncatable by virtue of its polymorphism and its polyvocity plus it appears then that the interest psychoanalysis has in myth, or in tragedy, is an essentially critical interest, since the specificity of myth, understood objectively, must melt under the rays of the subjective libido, it is indeed the world of representation that crumbles, or tends to crumble. It follows that, in the second place, the link between psychoanalysis and capitalism is no less profound than that between political economy and capitalism. This discovery of the decoded and deterritorialized flows is the same as that which takes place for political economy and in social production, in the form of subjective abstract labor, and for psychoanalysis and in desiring production, in the form of subjective abstract libido. As Marx says, in capitalism the essence becomes subjective the activity of production in general and abstract labor becomes something real from which all the preceding social formations can be reinterpreted from the point of view of a generalized decoding or a generalized process of deterritorialization, the simplest abstraction, then, which modern economics places at the head of its discussions, and which expresses an immeasurably ancient relation valid in all forms of society, nevertheless achieves practical truth as an abstraction only as a category of the most modern society. This is also the case for desire as abstract libido and as subjective essence. Not that a simple parallelism should be drawn between capitalist social production and desiring production, or between the flows of money capital and the shit flows of desire. The relationship is much closer, desiring machines are in social machines and nowhere else, so that the conjunction of the decoded flows in the capitalist machine tends to liberate the free figures of a universal subjective libido. In short, the discovery of an activity of production in general and without distinction, as it appears in capitalism, is the identical discovery of both political economy and psychoanalysis, beyond the determinate systems of representation. Obviously this does not mean that the capitalist being, or the being in capitalism, desires to work or that he works according to his desire. But the identity of desire and labor is not a myth, it is rather the active utopia par excellence that designates the capitalist limit to be overcome through desiring production. But why, precisely, is desiring production situated at the always counteracted limit of capitalism? Why, at the same time as it discovers the subjective essence of desire and labor a common essence, inasmuch as it is the activity of production in genera, is capitalism continually realienating this essence, 
and without interruption, in a repressive machine that divides the essence in two, and maintains it divided abstract labor on the one hand, abstract desire on the other, political economy and psychoanalysis, political economy and libidinal economy. Here we are able to appreciate the full extent to which psychoanalysis belongs to capitalism. For as we have seen, capitalism indeed has as its limit the decoded flows of desiring production, but it never stops repelling them by binding them in an axiomatic that takes the place of the codes. Capitalism is inseparable from the movement of deterritorialization, but this movement is exorcised through factitious and artificial re-territorializations. Capitalism is constructed on the ruins of the territorial and the despotic, the mythic and the tragic representations, but it re-establishes them in its own service and in another form, as images of capital. Marx summarizes the entire matter by saying that the subjective abstract essence is discovered by capitalism only to be put in chains all over again, to be subjugated and alienated no longer, it is true, in an exterior and independent element as objectify, but in the element, itself subjective, of private property, what was previously being external to oneself man's externalization in the thing has merely become the act of externalizing the process of alienating. It is, in fact, the form of private property that conditions the conjunction of the decoded flows, which is to say their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production, as the property of the capitalists, is directly related to the flow of so-called free labor, as the property of the workers, so that the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not at all affect this form. It is also the form of private property that constitutes the center of the factitious re-territorializations of capitalism. And finally, it is this form that produces the images filling the capitalist field of immanence, the capitalist, the worker, etc. In other terms, capitalism indeed implies the collapse of the great objective determinate representations, for the benefit of production as the universal interior essence, but it does not thereby escape the world of representation. It merely performs a vast conversion of this world, by attributing to it the new form of an infinite subjective representation. We seem to be straying from the main concern of psychoanalysis, yet never have we been so close. For here again, as we have seen previously, it is in the interiority of its movement that capitalism requires and institutes not only a social axiomatic, but an application of this axiomatic to the privatized family. Representation would never be able to ensure its own conversion without this application that furrows deep into it, cleaves it, and forces it back upon itself. Thus subjective abstract labor as represented in private property has, as its correlate, subjective abstract desire as represented in the privatized family. Psychoanalysis undertakes the analysis of this second term, as political economy analyzes the first. Psychoanalysis is the technique of application, for which political economy is the axiomatic. In a word, psychoanalysis disengages the second pole in the very movement of capitalism, which substitutes the infinite subjective representation for the large determinate objective representations. It is in fact essential that the limit of the decoded flows of desiring production be doubly exorcised, doubly displaced, once by the position of imminent limits that capitalism does not cease to reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, 
and again by the marking out of an interior limit that reduces this social reproduction to restricted familial reproduction. Consequently, the ambiguity of psychoanalysis in relation to myth or tragedy has the following explanation, psychoanalysis undoes them as objective representations, and discovers in them the figures of a subjective universal libido, but it reanimates them, and promotes them as subjective representations that extend the mythic and tragic contents to infinity. Psychoanalysis does treat myth and tragedy, but it treats them as the dreams and the fantasies of private man, homo familia, and in fact dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property. What acts in myth and tragedy at the level of objective elements is therefore reappropriated and raised to a higher level by psychoanalysis, but as an unconscious dimension of subjective representation, myth as humanity's dream. What acts as an objective and public element the earth, the despot is now taken up again, but as the expression of a subjective and private re-territorialization, Oedipus is the fallen despot banished, deterritorialized but a re-territorialization is engineered, using the Oedipus complex conceived of as the daddy-mommy-me of today's everyman. Psychoanalysis and the Oedipus complex gather up all beliefs, all that has ever been believed by humanity, but only in order to raise it to the condition of a denial that preserves belief without believing in it, it's only a dream, the strictest piety today asks for nothing more. Whence this double impression, that psychoanalysis is opposed to mythology no less than to mythologists, but at the same time extends myth and tragedy to the dimensions of the subjective universal, if Oedipus himself has no complex, the Oedipus complex has no Oedipus, just as narcissism has no narcissus. Such is the ambivalence that traverses psychoanalysis, and that extends beyond the specific problem of myth and tragedy, with one hand psychoanalysis undoes the system of objective representations, myth, tragedy, for the benefit of the subjective essence conceived as desiring production, while with the other hand it reverses this production in a system of subjective representations, dream and fantasy, with myth and tragedy posited as their developments or projections. Images, nothing but images. What is left in the end is an intimate familial theater, the theater of private man, which is no longer either desiring production or objective representation. The unconscious as a stage. A whole theater put in the place of production, a theater that disfigures this production even more than could tragedy and myth when reduced to their meager ancient resources. Myth, tragedy, dream, and fantasy and myth and tragedy reinterpreted in terms of dream and fantasy are the representative series that psychoanalysis substitutes for the line of production, social and desiring production. A theater series, instead of a production series. But why in fact does representation, having become subjective representation, assume this theatrical form, there is a mysterious tie between psychoanalysis and the theater. We are familiar with the eminently modern reply of certain recent authors, the theater elicits the finite structure of the infinite subjective representation. What is meant by elicit is very complex, since the structure can never present more than its own absence, or represent something not represented in the representation, but it is claimed that the theater's privilege is that of staging this metaphoric and metonymic causality that marks both the presence and the absence of the structures in its effects. While Andre Green expresses reservations about the adequacy of the structure, he does so only in the name of a theater necessary for the actualization of this structure, 
playing the role of revealer, a place by which the structure becomes visible. In her fine analysis of the phenomenon of belief, Octave Manini likewise uses the theater model to show how the denial of belief in fact implies a transformation of belief, under the effect of a structure that the theater embodies or places on stage. Point 16 We should understand that representation, when it ceases to be objective, when it becomes subjective infinite that is to say, imaginary effectively loses all consistency, unless it is supported by a structure that determines the place and the functions of the subject of representation, as well as the objects represented as images, and the formal relations between them all. Symbolic thus no longer designates the relation of representation to an objectity as an element, it designates the ultimate elements of subjective representation, pure signifiers, pure non-represented representatives whence the subjects, the objects, and their relationships all derive. In this way the structure designates the unconscious of subjective representation. The series of this representation now presents itself, imaginary, infinite subjective representation theatrical representation structural representation. And precisely because the theater is thought to stage the latent structure, as well as to embody its elements and relations, it is in a position to reveal the universality of this structure, even in the objective representations that it salvages and reinterprets in terms of hidden representatives, their migrations, and variable relations. All former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious, we are still pious. Everywhere, the great game of the symbolic signifier that is embodied in the signifieds of the imaginary Oedipus as a universal metaphor. Why the theater? How bizarre, this theatrical and pasteboard unconscious, the theater taken as the model of production. Even in Louis Althusser we are witness to the following operation, the discovery of social production as machine or machinery, irreducible to the world of objective representation, Vorstellian, but immediately the reduction of the machine to structure, the identification of production with a structural and theatrical representation, Darstellian, Point 17 Now the same is true of both desiring production and social production, every time that production, rather than being apprehended in its originality, in its reality, becomes reduced, rabatu, in this manner to a representational space, it can no longer have value except by its own absence, and it appears as a lack within this space. In search of the structure in psychoanalysis, Mustafa Safwan is able to present it as a contribution to a theory of lack. It is in the structure that the fusion of desire with the impossible is performed, with lack defined as castration. From the structure there arises the most austere song in honor of castration yes, yes, we enter the order of desire through the gates of castration once desiring production has spread out in the space of a representation that allows it to go on living only as an absence and a lack unto itself. For a structural unity is imposed on the desiring machines that joins them together in a molar aggregate, the partial objects are referred to a totality that can appear only as that which the partial objects lack, and as that which is lacking unto itself while being lacking in them, the great signifier symbolizable by the inherency of a minus one in the ensemble of signifiers. Just how far will one go in the development of a lack of lack traversing the structure? Such is the structural operation, it distributes lack in the molar aggregate. The limit of desiring production the borderline separating the molar aggregates and their molecular elements, 
the objective representations and the machines of desire is now completely displaced. The limit now passes only within the molar aggregate itself, inasmuch as the latter is furrowed by the line of castration. The formal operations of the structure are those of extrapolation, application, and biunivocalization, which reduce the social aggregate of departure to a familial aggregate of destination, with the familial relation becoming metaphorical for all the others and hindering the molecular productive elements from following their own line of escape. When Andre Green looks for the reasons that establish the affinity of psychoanalysis with the theatrical and structural representation it makes visible, he offers two that are especially striking, the theater raises the familial relation to the condition of a universal metaphoric structural relation, whence the imaginary place and interplay of persons derives, and inversely, the theater forces the play and the working of machines into the wings, behind a limit that has become impassable. Exactly as in fantasy the machines are there, but behind the wall. In short, the displaced limit no longer passes between objective representation and desiring production, but between the two poles of subjective representation, as infinite imaginary representation, and as finite structural representation. Thereafter it is possible to oppose these two aspects to each other, the imaginary variations that tend toward the night of the indeterminate or the non-differentiated, and the symbolic invariant that traces the path of the differentiations, the same thing is found all over, following a rule of inverse relation, or double bind. All of production is conducted into the double impasse of subjective representation. Oedipus can always be consigned to the imaginary, but no matter, it will be encountered again, stronger and more whole, more lacking and triumphant by the very fact that it is lacking, it will be encountered again in its entirety in symbolic castration. And it's a sure thing that structure affords us no means for escaping familialism, on the contrary, it adds another turn, it attributes a universal metaphoric value to the family at the very moment it has lost its objective literal values. Psychoanalysis makes its ambition clear, to relieve the waning family, to replace the broken down familial bed with the psychoanalyst's couch, to make it so that the analytic situation is incestuous in its essence, so that it is its own proof or voucher, on a par with reality.18. In the final analysis that is indeed what is at issue, as Octave Manini shows, how can belief continue after repudiation, how can we continue to be pious? We have repudiated and lost all our beliefs that proceeded by way of objective representations. The earth is dead, the desert is growing, the old father is dead, the territorial father, and the son too, the despot Oedipus. We are alone with our bad conscience and our boredom, our life where nothing happens, nothing left but images that revolve within the infinite subjective representation. We will muster all our strength so as to believe in these images, from the depths of a structure that governs our relationships with them and our identifications as so many effects of a symbolic signifier. The good identification. We are all Archie Bunker at the theater, shouting out before Oedipus, there's my kind of guy, there's my kind of guy. Everything, the myth of the earth, the tragedy of the despot, is taken up again as shadows projected on a stage. The great territorialities have fallen into ruin, but the structure proceeds with all the subjective and private re-territorializations. What a perverse operation psychoanalysis is, where this neoidealism, 
this rehabilitated cult of castration, this ideology of lack culminates, the anthropomorphic representation of sex. In truth, they don't know what they are doing, nor what mechanism of repression they are fostering, for their intentions are often progressive. But no one today can enter an analyst's consulting room without at least being aware that everything has been played out in advance, Oedipus and castration, the imaginary and the symbolic, the great lesson of the inadequacy of being or of dispossession. Psychoanalysis as a gadget, Oedipus as a re-territorialization, a redembering of modern man on the rock of castration. The path marked out by Lakin led in a completely different direction. He is not content to turn, like the analytic squirrel, inside the will of the imaginary and the symbolic, he refuses to be caught up in the Oedipal imaginary and the Oedipalizing structure, the imaginary identity of persons and the structural unity of machines, everywhere knocking against the impasses of a molar representation that the family closes round itself. What is the use of going from the imaginary dual order to the symbolic third, or fourth, if the latter is bi-univocalizing whereas the first is bi-univocalized? As partial objects the desiring machines undergo two totalizations, one when the socius confers on them a structural unity under a symbolic signifier acting as absence and lack in an aggregate of departure, the other when the family imposes on them a personal unity with imaginary signifieds that distribute, that vacuolize lack in an aggregate of destination, a double abduction of the orphan machines, inasmuch as the structure applies its articulation to them, inasmuch as the parents lay there. Fingers on them. To trace back from images to the structure would have little significance and would not rescue us from representation, if the structure did not have a reverse side that is like the real production of desire. This reverse side is the real inorganization of the molecular elements, partial objects that enter into indirect syntheses or interactions, since they are not partial, partiales, in the sense of extensive parts, but rather partial, partials, like the intensities under which a unit of matter always fills space in varying degrees, the eye, the mouth, the anus as degrees of matter, pure positive multiplicities where everything is possible, without exclusiveness or negation, synthesis operating. Without a plan, where the connections are transverse, the disjunctions included, the conjunctions polyvocal, indifferent to their underlying support, since this matter that serves them precisely as a support receives no specificity from any structural or personal unity, but appears as the body without organs that fills the space each time an intensity fills it, signs of desire that compose a signifying chain but that are not themselves signifying, and do not answer to the rules of a linguistic game of chess. But instead to the lottery drawings that sometimes cause a word to be chosen, sometimes a design, sometimes a thing or a piece of a thing, depending on one another only by the order of the random drawings, and holding together only by the absence of a link, non-localizable connections, having no other statutory condition than that of being dispersed elements of desiring machines that are themselves dispersed plus it is this entire reverse side of the structure that Lakin discovers, with the O.S. machine, and the O.S. non-human sex, schizophrenizing the analytic field, instead of oedipalizing psychotic field. Everything hinges on the way in which the structure is elicited from the machines, according to planes of consistency or of structuration, and lines of selection that correspond to the large statistical aggregates or molar formations, 
and that determine the links and reduce production to representation that is where the disjunctions become exclusive, and the connections global, and the conjunctions, by univocal, at the same time that the support gains a specificity under a structural unity, and the signs themselves become signifying under the action of a despotic symbol that totalizes them in the name of its own absence or withdrawal. Yes, in fact, there the production of desire can be represented only in terms of an extrapolated sign that joins together all the elements of production in a constellation of which it is not itself a part. There the absence of a tie necessarily appears as an absence, and no longer as a positive force. Their desire is necessarily referred to a missing term, whose very essence is to be lacking. The signs of desire, being non-signifying, become signifying in representation only in terms of a signifier of absence or lack. The structure is formed and appears only in terms of the symbolic term defined as a lack. The great other as the non-human sex gives way, in representation, to a signifier of the great other as an always missing term, the all-too-human sex, the phallus of molar castration. Here too Lacan's approach appears in all its complexity, for it is certain that he does not enclose the unconscious in an Oedipal structure. He shows on the contrary that Oedipus is imaginary, nothing but an image, a myth, that this or these images are produced by an Oedipalizing structure, that this structure acts only insofar as it reproduces the element of castration, which itself is not imaginary but symbolic. There we have the three major planes of structuration, which correspond to the molar aggregates, Oedipus as the imaginary re-territorialization of private man, produced under the structural conditions of capitalism, inasmuch as capitalism reproduces and revives the archaism of the imperial symbol or the vanished despot. All three are necessary precisely in order to lead Oedipus to the point of its self-critique. The task undertaken by Lacan is to lead Oedipus to such a point. Likewise, Elizabeth Raudinesco has clearly seen that, in Lacan, the hypothesis of an unconscious as language does not closet the unconscious in a linguistic structure, but leads linguistics to the point of its autocritique, by showing how the structural organization of signifiers still depends on a despotic great signifier acting as an archaism. 19. What is this point of self-criticism? It is the point where the structure, beyond the images that fill it and the symbolic that conditions it within representation, reveals its reverse side as a positive principle of non-consistency that dissolves it, where desire is shifted into the order of production, related to its molecular elements, and where it lacks nothing, because it is defined as the natural and sensuous objective being, at the same time as the real is defined as the objective being of desire. For the unconscious of schizoanalysis is unaware of persons, aggregates, and laws, and of images, structures, and symbols. It is an orphan, just as it is an anarchist and an atheist. It is not an orphan in the sense that the father's name would designate an absence, but in the sense that the unconscious reproduces itself wherever the names of history designate present intensities, the sea of proper names. The unconscious is not figurative, since its figural is abstract, the figure skis. It is not structural, nor is it symbolic, for its reality is that of the real in its very production, in its very inorganization. It is not representative, but solely machinic, and productive. Destroy, destroy. 
The task of schizoanalysis goes by way of destruction a whole scouring of the unconscious, a complete curatage. Destroy Oedipus, the illusion of the ego, the puppet of the superego, guilt, the law, castration. It is not a matter of pious destructions, such as those performed by psychoanalysis under the benevolent neutral eye of the analyst. For these are Hegel-style destructions, ways of conserving. How is it that the celebrated neutrality, and what psychoanalysis calls dares to call the disappearance or the dissolution of the Oedipus complex, do not make us burst into laughter? We are told that Oedipus is indispensable, that it is the source of every possible differentiation, and that it saves us from the terrible non-differentiated mother. But this terrible mother, the Sphinx, is herself part of Oedipus, her non-differentiation is merely the reverse of the exclusive differentiations created by Oedipus, she is herself created by Oedipus, Oedipus necessarily operates in the form of this double impasse. We are told that Oedipus in its turn must be overcome, and that this is achieved through castration, latency, desexualization, and sublimation. But what is castration if not still Oedipus, to the nth power, now symbolic, and therefore all the more virulent? And what is latency, this pure fable, if not the silence imposed on desiring machines so that Oedipus can develop, be fortified in us, so that it can accumulate its poisonous sperm and gain the time necessary for propagating itself, and for passing on to our future children. And what is the elimination of castration anxiety in its turn desexualization and sublimation if not divine acceptance of, and infinite resignation to, bad conscience, which consists for the woman of the appeased wish for a penis. Destined to be converted into a wish for a baby and for a husband, and for the man in assuming his passive attitude and in subjecting himself to a father substitute, 20. We are all the more extricated from Oedipus as we become a living example, an advertisement, a theorem in action, so as to attract our children to Oedipus, we have evolved in Oedipus, we have been structured in Oedipus, and under the neutral and benevolent eye of the substitute, we have learned the song of castration, the lack of being that is life, yes it is through castration slash that we gain access slash to desire. What one calls the disappearance of Oedipus is Oedipus become an idea. Only the idea can inject the venom. Oedipus has to become an idea so that it sprouts each time a new set of arms and legs, lips and mustache, in tracing back the memory deaths your ego becomes a sort of mineral theorem which constantly proves the futility of living 21. We have been triangulated in Oedipus, and will triangulate in it in turn. From the family to the couple, from the couple to the family. In actuality, the benevolent neutrality of the analyst is very limited, it ceases the instant one stops responding daddy mommy. It ceases the instant one introduces a little desiring machine the tape recorder into the analyst's office, it ceases as soon as a flow is made to circulate that does not let itself be stopped by Oedipus, the mark of the triangle, they tell you you have a libido that is too viscous, or too liquid, contraindications for analysis. When Fromm denounces the existence of a psychoanalytic bureaucracy, he still doesn't go far enough, because he doesn't see what the stamp of this bureaucracy is, and that an appeal to the pre-Oedipal is not enough to escape the stamp, the pre-Oedipal, like the post-Oedipal, is still a way of bringing all of desiring production the Ano-Oedipal back to Oedipus. 
when Reich denounces the way in which psychoanalysis joins forces with social repression, he still doesn't go far enough, because he doesn't see that the tie linking psychoanalysis with capitalism is not merely ideological, that it is infinitely closer, infinitely tighter, and that psychoanalysis depends directly on an economic mechanism, whence its relations with money, through which the decoded flows of desire, as taken up in the axiomatic of capitalism, must necessarily be reduced to a familial field where the application of this axiomatic is carried out, Oedipus as the last word of capitalist consumption sucking away at daddy mommy, being blocked and triangulated on the couch, so it's psychoanalysis, no less than the bureaucratic or military apparatus, is a mechanism for the absorption of surplus value, nor is this true from the outside, extrinsically, rather, its very form and its finality are marked by this social function. It is not the pervert, nor even the autistic person, who escapes psychoanalysis, the whole of psychoanalysis is an immense perversion, a drug, a radical break with reality, starting with the reality of desire, it is a narcissism, a monstrous autism, the characteristic autism and the intrinsic perversion of the machine of capital. At its most autistic, psychoanalysis is no longer measured against any reality, it no longer opens to any outside, but becomes itself the test of reality and the guarantor of its own test, reality as the lack to which the inside and the outside, departure and arrival, are reduced. Psychoanalysis index sui, with no other reference than itself or the analytic situation. Psychoanalysis states clearly that unconscious representation can never be apprehended independently of the deformations, disguises, or displacements it undergoes. Unconscious representation therefore comprises essentially, by virtue of its own law, a represented that is displaced in relation to an agency in a constant state of displacement. But from this, two unwarranted conclusions are drawn, that this agency can be discovered by way of the displaced represented, and this, precisely because this agency itself belongs to representation, as a non-represented representative, or as a lack that juts out into the overfull, tropline, of a representation. This results from the fact that displacement refers to very different movements, at times, the movement through which desiring production is continually overcoming the limit, becoming deterritorialized, causing its flows to escape, going beyond the threshold of representation, at times, on the contrary, the movement through which the limit itself is displaced, and now passes to the interior of the representation that performs the artificial re-territorializations of desire. If the displacing agency can be concluded from the displaced, this is only true in the second sense, where molar representation is organized around a representative that displaces the represented. But this is certainly not true in the first sense, where the molecular elements are continually passing through the links in the chain. We have seen in this perspective how the law of representation perverted the productive forces of the unconscious, and induced in its very structure a false image that caught desire in its trap, the impossibility of concluding from the prohibition as to what is actually prohibited. Yes, Oedipus is indeed the displaced represented, yes, castration is indeed the representative, the displacing agency, le deplacant, the signifier but none of that constitutes an unconscious material, nor does any of it concern the productions of the unconscious. Oedipus, castration, the signifier, 
etc., exist at the crossroads of two operations of capture, one where repressive social production becomes replaced by beliefs, the other where repressed desiring production finds itself replaced by representations. To be sure, it is not psychoanalysis that makes us believe, Oedipus and castration are demanded, then demanded again, and these demands come from elsewhere and from deeper down. But psychoanalysis did find the following means, and fills the following function, causing beliefs to survive even after repudiation, causing those who no longer believe in anything to continue believing, reconstituting a private territory for them, a private er-state, a private capital, dreams as capital, said Freud. That is why, inversely, schizoanalysis must devote itself with all its strength to the necessary destructions. Destroying beliefs and representations, theatrical scenes. And when engaged in this task no activity will be too malevolent. Causing Oedipus and castration to explode, brutally intervening each time the subject strikes up the song of myth or intones tragic lines, carrying him back to the factory. As Charles says, a lot we care about your grandmother, you little shit. Oedipus and castration are no more than reactional formations, resistances, blockages, and armorings whose destruction can't come fast enough. Reich intuits a fundamental principle of schizoanalysis when he says that the destruction of resistances must not wait upon the discovery of the material point 22 but the reason for this is even more radical than he thought, there is no unconscious material, so that schizoanalysis has nothing to interpret. There are only resistances, and then machines desiring machines. Oedipus is a resistance, if we have been able to speak of the intrinsically perverted nature of psychoanalysis, this is due to the fact that perversion in general is the artificial re-territorialization of the flows of desire, whose machines on the contrary are indices of deterritorialized production. The psychoanalyst re-territorializes on the couch, in the representation of Oedipus and castration. Schizoanalysis on the contrary must disengage the deterritorialized flows of desire, in the molecular elements of desiring production. We should again call to mind the practical rule laid down by Leclerc, following Lakin, the rule of the right to nonsense as well as to the absence of a link, you will not have reached the ultimate and irreducible terms of the unconscious so long as you find or restore a link between two elements. But how then can one see in this extreme dispersion machines dispersed in every machine nothing more than a pure fiction that must give way to reality defined as a lack, with Oedipus and castration back at a gallop, at the same time that one reduces the absence of a link to a signifier of absence charged with representing the absence, with linking this absence itself, and with moving us back and forth from one pole of displacement to the other. One falls back into the molar hole while claiming to unmask the real. What complicates everything is that there is indeed a necessity for desiring production to be induced from representation, to be discovered through its lines of escape. But this is true in a way altogether different from what psychoanalysis believes it to be. The decoded flows of desire form the free energy, libido, of the desiring machines. The desiring machines take form and train their sights along a tangent of deterritorialization that traverses the representative spheres, and that runs along the body without organs. Leaving, escaping, but while causing more escapes. The desiring machines themselves are the flows schizes or the brakes flows that break and flow at the same time on the body without organs, 
not the gaping wound represented in castration, but the myriad little connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions by which every machine produces a flow in relation to another that breaks it, and breaks a flow that another produces. But how would these decoded and deterritorialized flows of desiring production keep from being reduced to some representative territoriality, how would they keep from forming for themselves yet another such territory, even if on the body without organs as the indifferent support for a last representation? Even those who are best at leaving, those who make leaving into something as natural as being born or dying, those who set out in search of non-human sex Lawrence, Miller stake out a far-off territoriality that still forms an anthropomorphic and phallic representation, the Orient, Mexico, or Peru.